0: Welcome to the Bulgarian History Podcast, Episode 102, Revolutions, Rebellions, and Reforms. So it's only been a couple days, no new patrons since the last time, but I will remind everyone there is a brand new kind of Patreon benefit if you want. There's a kind of little version of a lecture that I gave at the University of Richmond that I recorded as a mini episode all about Bulgaria and the Crusade. So if you want to do a deep dive into kind of how Tsar Kalyan almost, almost made Bulgaria a Catholic country, Hard to imagine these days, but it came very close to happening. If you'd like to learn more about that, you can become a patron. So, besides that, let's get into it. Now, last time, we finished off one Russo-Ottoman war with the collapse of a rebellion in Egypt and a Russian army getting all the way into Bulgarian lands, leading to the Treaty of Kuchuk kainarka which gave Russia further influence in Ottoman territory and made the Crimean Khaganate independent, paving the way for its annexation by Russia. Meanwhile, the Saudi state was expanding in Arabia, and Ottoman frustration with the post-treaty situation led to yet another war, this time with both Russia and Austria. Russia made quick gains in Moldavia, while Austria did poorly early on before taking Wallachia and Belgrade. Now, with the prospect of Prussia entering the war on the Ottoman side, Austria has signed an armistice and move substantial forces to Bohemia to protect its rear. Yet another event which has just broken out and was deeply worrying to the Austrians, this thing you may have heard of it, the French Revolution. Even after the armistice, the Russians made further gains in Moldavia and farther south, taking the evidently impenetrable fortress of Ismail at the mouth of the Danube. The Ottoman force, which marched up to meet them, requisitioned nearly all of the grain in Dobruja as they marched through the territory. Once there, they were defeated. Meanwhile, Bulgarian rebels from Kyrgyli had been attacking Ottoman supply lines through Bulgaria, leaving the garrison of Vidin without supplies and forcing the city's population to seek shelter in Sofia. In response, the Ottomans sent troops to find and kill these rebels. And with that, the year 1790 came to a close. In the summer of 1791, the Russians had yet another victory near the mouth of the Danube, again defeating an Ottoman force nearly three times their size. These victories were showing both the superiority of Russian command at this moment and the general deterioration of Ottoman military units relative to their European counterparts, even the Russian ones. Shortly afterwards, in August, the Austrians signed the Treaty of Sistova, also known as Svistov, which is the name of the town in Bulgaria on the Danube, with the Ottomans. Essentially, the Austrians were eager to end the war with ever-increasing worries about what was going on in France and what might happen in Berlin. The Austrians ultimately accepted only minor gains, taking a few towns in the Banat and on the Croatian frontier. Yes, remarkably, somehow the Ottomans had managed to actually hold on to Belgrade, which shocked me about this treaty. Considering how vital and powerful Belgrade was as a fortress, and what the Austrians went through to take it, the fact that it went back to the Ottomans just baffles me. But, well, it just really shows how worried the Austrians were and how desperate they were to get out of this war. Now, what handing Belgrade back to the Ottomans meant is that In addition, the entire swath of Serbia, south of the Danube, all the way to Bulgaria, which had been occupied for three years during the war by the Austrians, was now also handed back to the Ottomans. Now it should come as no surprise that this triggered yet more Serbian exiles fleeing north into Austria. And it's no surprise that the Serbs, which were kind of becoming ever more increasingly frustrated with this whole situation, being conquered by the Austrians, supporting the Austrians, and then getting handed back to the Ottomans and facing Ottoman retributions. But for now, the Serbs would have to simply buy their time. Historian Susanna Rajic wrote, quote, The wars of the 16th 17th and 18th centuries instilled in the serbian consciousness the deep-seated expectation that only austria could lend a helping hand i.e. in liberating serbia from the ottomans this faith was largely shaken after kocina karea i think the treaty of kutrukainarka and the last austro-turkish war 1788 to 1791 when it became clear that despite the serbs' merits and heavy casualties in the fight against the Turks, the emperor abandoned them and made peace with the sultan. Since then, Russia superseded Austria in the Serbs' plans to restore their state. End quote. So that kind of gives you a little bit of an idea over how, I mean, it's basically the same with Bulgaria, that Bulgaria also for, you know, well over a century has kind of believed that Austria was the state which could potentially liberate them from the Ottomans, but now, again, that's turning to Russia. And so this is showing even Serbia closer, right there on the Ottoman, or on the Austrian border, rather, even there shifting their kind of attention towards Russia. Now, just a few weeks after this separate treaty from Svistov, Austria signed an agreement with Prussia, in which Austria agreed not to take any more Ottoman territory. Obviously, Prussia was concerned with the Austrians kind of growing in power. In exchange, Prussia promised not to expand eastward into Poland and not to support uprisings against Austria. Both agreed to intervene in the French Revolution should it prove necessary. And the dangers there were real. The war had made the emperor deeply unpopular within Austria and the Austrian state riddled with debt. In addition, there was a bad harvest and food riots, as well as the revolution going on in Paris quickly escalated things, and no doubt the court in Vienna was very nervous about their situation. But beyond Vienna, these policies actually changed a great deal. There was a lot happening. As I just mentioned, right, there was this enormous shift and Austria had essentially with this agreement with Prussia gone even farther in abandoning the role it had served for centuries as the potential savior of the Balkan peoples and the main foe of the Ottomans. Now, concern over the growing power of both Prussia and the revolution going on in France had turned Austrian attention away from the Balkans and away from the Ottomans. Now more than ever, it was really only Russia that could serve as a potential ally to the Bulgarians who yearned for independence. And so it's kind of an interesting, you know, kind of a domino effect, right? That the reason that Bulgaria ultimately turned towards Russia is in large part, in this case, because of the rise of Prussia and the coming revolution in France, that these are the events that really firmly pushed Austria to change its role in the whole region. Now, Russia, for its part, was also concerned about Prussia entering the war and had signed a truce with the Austrians after final, just as the Austrians were kind of finalizing their treaty with the Prussians. Now, the Ottomans, for their part, they were seeing that the Russian army was ravaging the lands actually pretty close to Constantinople, and they were understandably very eager to make peace themselves. So the Treaty of Yassi, or Yash, uh, now in the Moldovan region of Romania, ultimately gave Russia rather moderate gains relative to what the Russian army had accomplished during the war. But once again, Russia was pretty eager to end the war because of concerns about Prussia and concerns about France. And so, in essence, again, the rise of Prussia and the revolution going on in France both really spared the Ottoman Empire from what would have been a far more disastrous war otherwise. So in the Treaty of Yash, Russian control of Crimea was acknowledged, and they annexed a large swath of territory between the Bug and Dniester rivers around the modern border of Moldavia and Ukraine. Sorry, Moldova and Ukraine. Talking about the modern country now. Uh, There's a map of that on the website on the blog post for this episode. Now, The reason for the moderate gains, again, was the same as those for Austria. Besides being worried about Prussia, Catherine the Great's Russia was also deeply concerned about the revolutionary fervor that could potentially spread from France to Russia. Now, By the time the Austrian and Russian wars were over, the French Revolution was well on its way, though. The National Convention was now running things, although the king still had his head. Now, back in Constantinople, remember that young Selim III was on the throne, and he shared his father Mustafa's beliefs in both military and civil reforms. So, obviously, you know, during the war, it's pretty hard to get any reforms done, but there's kind of a question. You know, Selim is very pro-reform, and there's this open question in the air as to whether or not he'll be able to do these. Now, shifting our attention a little bit, over in Poland... The severely weakened government in Poland had signed an alliance with Prussia in 1790, reviving hopes that the Polish country may yet survive. However, after this moment, Poland began modernizing reforms which greatly angered Catherine the Great. Remember, everyone is paranoid about revolution at this moment, and so seeing modernizing reforms makes Catherine the Great think, "Um, oh, this is maybe going to lead to revolution in Poland, or maybe it's going to make the Russian people demand similar reforms. So to kind of put an end to these reforms Russia invaded months before the war with the Ottomans had even ended again showing that Russia is not very concerned about Poland as a as a military power and that I guess it's not very concerned about Prussian backlash remember the austrians had promised not to expand into poland but the russians had made no such agreement but well the reason for this became clear in a moment because prussia immediately abandoned poland mostly because Prussia had just lost a major battle against revolutionary France. The wars of the French Revolution had just gotten going at this point. And so, in response to this loss against the French, Prussia put together an agreement with Russia, which saw them join the first coalition against France, and the two agreed to partition Poland for a second time. So, again, you can see here this kind of makes sense. You know, Prussia had allied with Poland, but now... know with the loss to france prussia really needed stronger allies and russia was a far stronger ally than poland and so it made more sense to just divvy up poland between them and the russians and this time though the austrians were left out they had promised not to expand that way prussia was more concerned about rising austrian power and so initially this was just a divvy of poland between russia and the prussians and thus the polish lithuanian state was reduced even more, and its complete and total inability to defend itself was on full display. Now, this triggered riots, both against the occupying powers and, overall, in favor of revolutionary France. It's clear the Polish people were not exactly happy with what was going on. The uprising was crushed by Austria, Prussia, and Russia, and in response to this uprising, the three agreed to a third and a final partition of the country. So, the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth, which had controlled a massive chunk of Eastern Europe for 226 years, was dissolved. It would be more than a century before an independent Polish or Lithuanian state would re-emerge. But while Poland was being partitioned, in 1794, other things were happening back in the Ottoman Empire. In that year, the Ottoman ruler in Vidin, Osman Pazwantolu, rebelled, he made his hometown of Vidin his capital and soon ruled a territory stretching from Belgrade to Varna. To make matters worse, other Ottoman forces were still fighting bandits and rebels throughout the Rodopi Mountains and the rest of Bulgaria, as they fought both the rebels based in Vidin and these rebel groups scattered throughout the country. Which, of course, kept the Ottomans on their toes and allowed the Vidin rebels to kind of continue doing as they liked. But obviously this also devastated bulgaria as many towns were sacked by both the ottomans and the rebels and you can imagine you know, having all these armies and rebel bands moving around your territory is not exactly good for stable commerce or for harvests or any of that kind of stuff so ultimately the real losers to all these kind of mini rebellions were the everyday bulgarian people now Considering, though, how easily most of these rebellions close to Constantinople had been crushed in the past, remember how many times the Bulgarians had really risen up and just been instantly crushed within a matter of months. The fact that you had all these kind of low-key simmering rebellions going on in Bulgarian territories really, again, showed how weak the Ottomans were. And remember, it's not that Selim III was a particularly weak sultan or was uninterested. Remember, he was young and he was advocating military reform. So even with a young and dynamic sultan on the throne, the Ottomans were unable to firmly gain control of Bulgarian territory. Now, by 1797, an army of 100,000 Ottomans was dispatched to reconquer Vidin and put down the rebellion there. But remarkably, this failed they actually could not retake Vidin, which, you, you, again, you think about how easy these little rebellions were to put down, and this time, the, the fact that they couldn't do it is remarkable. But, remember, this is not also kind of a Bulgarian rebellion. This is, you know, in Bulgarian territory, but it's basically an Ottoman ruler that just decided to do his own thing. Now, following these events, pazontolu the the leader of the Vidin at this moment, actually attempted to annex some Serbian territory, but was stopped by an Ottoman-allied Serbian force. So in this case, incidentally, the Serbs were willing to ally with the Ottomans to keep out of this kind of new little mini-rebel state. Now that same year, Sultan Selim finally formed the Nizam-i-Jedid army, i.e. the kind of the new force army, uh, this was a modern European-style military unit intended to eventually replace the Janissaries. Remember, the Janissaries are still around, they are still not a very effective military force, and they are still kind of sucking on the state by taking annual uh, you know, allowances from the state treasury and not really doing very much to earn the money. So, you know, many, many sultans have tried to kind of replace and push out the Janissaries before, And Selim is trying this again, so he's trying to form a modern, European-style military unit that will do that. And, well, forming this unit was just in time, because in 1799, the Ottoman world was suddenly rocked to its core. Remember that France had been an on-again-off-again Ottoman ally for about 300 years at this point. But, by this point, Napoleon had taken command of revolutionary France, He hasn't declared himself emperor yet, but he's basically running the show there. And that country's geopolitical aims and its allies have been completely changed. Now, while the early years of the French Revolution were clearly very good for the Ottomans because they, you know, pulled the Russians and the Austrians' attention away and allowed the Ottomans to get off pretty light from those wars, they, you know, they dramatically weakened Austria and Russia as well. But now things were changing. Now, Sultan Selim III actually sought an alliance around this time with Revolutionary France, which he thought could modernize his army. You know, get some nice uh, modern French military advisors and things will go great. However, the officer that was actually supposed to go assist in the development of the artillery was ultimately too busy to go do it. And that officer's name was Napoleon Bonaparte. Which is rather interesting, just think of that. Napoleon was almost sent to Constantinople to help train the Ottoman army uh, before he kind of rose to his greater heights. Still, some French officers were sent to help in military reforms, but the opposition of the Janissaries really frustrated them. Again, even with these foreigners coming in, the attempts to kind of modernize and change anything in the Ottoman military is always, always, you know, getting pushback from the Janissaries, and this just drives everyone crazy. Now, in 1797, Napoleon acquired a number of islands in the eastern Mediterranean, suddenly for the first time putting French territory up against Ottoman territory. Napoleon's next move would change the relationship with the Ottomans forever. Now, remember, Egypt had not been directly controlled by the Ottomans since a Mamluk uprising 30 years earlier, and during that time France had actually considered moving into the territory. But... You know, Egypt was still nominally part of the Ottoman Empire, and there was no way for France really to make that move. But now, seeing a move against Egypt as a vital strike against the British, because it would help kind of prevent British commerce from going through that area, Napoleon struck. His fleet departed in May of 1798. Along the way, they conquered Malta, finally putting an end to the reign of the Knights of Malta, who had fought the Ottomans so intensely for centuries over the Mediterranean. Now on July 1st, the French landed in Egypt and Sultan Selim declared war. Now this was pretty remarkable because while France may have had some small participatory role in some campaigns against the Ottomans in the previous few centuries, this was effectively the first time they had ever really gone to war, having again been frequent allies for three centuries. It showed that while Egypt again may not have been under direct Ottoman control, The idea of a European power, even France, stepping in and taking over was completely unacceptable to the Ottomans. Remember, the Ottomans were already facing a lot of backlash and challenge in the wider Muslim world over the perception that they were not able to protect Muslims and to protect Muslim territory. And so to lose Egypt to a European power, it's not just about the geographical territory of Egypt, it's about Egypt as a symbol. It's about what this would do to the perception of the Ottomans and their power in the Islamic world. So now, suddenly... The Ottomans were at war with France and, as a direct result, became allies of the British. And, again as a result, only five years after the end of their last war with Russia, Russia and the Ottomans were now allies as well. So essentially, the Ottomans were now joining an anti-French alliance. Now, upon arriving in Egypt, Napoleon claimed that he was saving the people of Egypt from Ottoman and Mamluk oppression. He soon defeated Mamluk armies and took control of the territory. Now, Napoleon faced some revolts, but he managed to put them down. But his fleet, on the other hand, was largely destroyed by the British at the Battle of the Nile. The Ottomans now believed that they were ready to strike a killing blow against French ambitions in the region. It took until the next year for the Ottomans to be ready to attack, though. They planned a land campaign through Syria, as well as an amphibious attack from Rhodes. Now, Napoleon was worried he'd be overwhelmed by the Ottomans, so far from his supplies and in more or less hostile territory, and so he did what he usually did, which was go on the attack instead of waiting for the Ottomans to come to him. And this time, he made his move against the Ottoman army that was slowly marching through Syria. Napoleon moved by ship up towards Gaza and then attacked the port of Jaffa, intent on using it as his main supply port. He took it and then moved further north along the coast, defeating the Ottomans at Mount Tabor before moving to besiege Acre. There, he spotted the Ottoman fleet and realized that he was in a precarious position. Exhausted, hungry, short on supplies, and ravaged by plague, the French army decided to quietly rush back to Egypt and strip the land of supplies as they went. But even at this point of weakness, Napoleon still managed to defeat an Ottoman army sent against him in Egypt. In the summer of 1799, though, he quietly left Cairo to return to France, knowing that the army that remained there was not likely to be able to hold on to Egypt for very long. For this reason, an agreement was signed between the French, Ottomans, and British in the early days of the new 19th century. The British commander was forbidden from making peace, but he got that particular order too late. The agreement allowed French forces to safely evacuate back to France and for the Ottomans to take control of Egypt once again. However, after this was agreed to and French soldiers were ready to be transported, the British received their order to do exactly the opposite of what they had just agreed to do and to under no circumstances make peace with the French there. So getting these new orders, hostilities resumed, and a joint British and Ottoman army moved in to finish off the remaining French forces. However, remarkably, the outnumbered French defeated them and were able to return to Cairo. Still, this did little to change the overall situation and French forces were forced to surrender in 1801. The next year, the Treaty of Paris was signed, ostensibly returning everything to the status quo antebellum. However, there was no true going back. Napoleon had denounced the Ottomans in Egypt and helped spread revolutionary ideals throughout Ottoman territories. While we know anti-Ottoman ideas had already been widespread in Bulgaria and the Balkans, French revolutionary ideals provided yet another reason for many of these peoples to desire independence. Meanwhile, the vidin based rebellion of Osman Pazvanolu was still going strong. Having failed to conquer Vidin and suddenly finding himself at war with France, Sultan Selim actually had given him amnesty and made the man a pasha once again. Again, showing the remarkable weakness of the Ottomans at this moment, that they were desperate enough to take someone who had rebelled against them and defeated a massive army of theirs, basically just say, yeah, it's fine, don't worry about it, we'll bring you in and start giving you a salary again. But despite this new legitimacy, Pasvandolu engaged in yet more devastating raids on Wallachia, and, well, they were devastating enough that the Fenariate ruler of the territory actually resigned. Now, with this new situation, the Ottomans prepared another campaign against him in 1800, but the Ottomans were defeated and outmaneuvered in actions in Bulgaria. In 1801, the rebellions got even worse as dissatisfied Janissaries effectively took over the Ottoman Serbian territories and started to just rule them for themselves. One Serbian historian later described this as a, quote, a system of arbitrary abuse that was unmatched by anything similar in the entire history of Ottoman misrule in the Balkans, End quote. Now, lower taxes and greater autonomy had been granted by Selene III But to to the Serbian people in these regions, after they had been retaken from Austria, again, to kind of try to prevent any major rebellions there. Obviously, the Serbs were very upset about these situations. But the Janissaries who took over here immediately got rid of all of these more liberal policies, leading many local Serbs to flee and others to begin smuggling weapons over from the Austrian border. Meanwhile, Pansfandolu managed to defeat Ottoman forces several times the size of his own, again showing the weakness of the Ottomans against this rebel. In spring of 1802, they were making their way towards Bucharest itself. Again, I keep saying it, but again, showing how powerful these rebels were and how powerless the Ottomans were to really stop them. The population of Bucharest was seized with terror, leading most to flee, and the city was ultimately guarded by Ottoman and Albanian soldiers, but the Valachian ruler didn't pay them, and so they just abandoned the city. For a brief moment, Bucharest was apparently taken over by an assortment of vagabonds, who were then left, who kind of got out before Ottoman soldiers finally intervened there. So again, I mean, just the the level of chaos here, that different people are guarding these cities, you know, rebel groups are trying to take these cities, um, you know, vagabonds, just sort of random people are taking over when everyone else leaves. And, you know, as a result of all this, yet another Fenariate ruler in Wallachia was deposed but the level of instability is really shocking if you compare it to just a few decades earlier. Now, in the summer of 1802, we also see many Bulgarians fleeing towards Crimea and other Russian territories to escape the constant raids in the brigand groups, particularly around Kurjli and the Stranja. So, again, remember, the, the people kind of really facing the biggest burden from all this chaos are everyday people, and that's really happening in Bulgaria, leading to a lot of these people fleeing. Now, clearly, the Balkans as a whole were in chaos at this moment, and the Ottomans couldn't protect Wallachia from Pazvandoglu and his rebels. And, well, they couldn't defeat the man either. So, what were they supposed to do? They couldn't protect Wallachia, they couldn't defeat the guy, they couldn't protect these towns across Bulgaria from him or from rebel bands, and they couldn't prevent the Janissaries from taking over Serbia and running it as they pleased. Even beyond the Balkans, the situation wasn't much better. In Arabia, the Saudi state was still expanding, and in 1802, they massacred a Shia Muslim population of the city and a shrine in Iraq. Within two years, the Saudis had also taken Mecca and Medina, delivering a serious blow to Ottoman prestige, particularly amongst Muslims. The Ottoman inability to protect Egypt, Iraq, Serbia, Bulgaria, or Wallachia from all kinds of plundering armies only made it more likely that powers, both foreign and domestic, would attempt to take advantage of Ottoman weakness. And well, the first to do so were the Serbs. They had been pushed to the limit. They had been attacked and abused by the Ottomans, Janissaries, and the forces at Pazvanolu, and they had been let down by the Austrian Habsburgs time and time again. They sent a letter to Sultan Selim, but the Janissaries learned about this and decided to make a move first. Secret letters were disseminated throughout Serbia, and on January 23, 1804, dozens of Serbian nobles were beaten and murdered by the Janissaries ruling the territory. Less than two weeks later, 72 decapitated heads were brought to Belgrade in a symbol of force. Less than two weeks after that, leading Serbs who had survived met in a small town in central Serbia and decided it was finally time to begin an uprising. Now, technically, this uprising was against the Janissaries who were abusing them, and the uprising was actually in favor of the return of the Sultan's comparatively benevolent rule. But, well, we'll see how that evolves. So next time, we'll see how the central Ottoman government will react. Will they support the Janissaries to forestall a potential movement for Serbian independence? Or will they side with the Serbs against the abuses of the Janissaries? And what will happen to the still powerful mini kind of rebel state run by Pazvandolu? Well, you'll just have to tune in and find out. This episode was written and produced by me, Eric Halsey. The theme music was written and performed by Teddy Raven. Check out the Bulgarian language version of the podcast at bghistorypodcast.com. And I'll catch you in the next one.